listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system awaited. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome, listeners, to our second special on the COVID-19 global pandemic what should governments be doing? What are they doing? And what is our way forward? And to help with that analysis, I've invited onto, onto the show just what you needed. I really know you need this, another American accent. <laughs> we're, joined, <laughs> we're joined by Gary Flomenhoft, uh, our friend and colleague up at uh, University of Queensland up in Brisbane. And uh, Gary has been on the show a number of times. He has just submitted his PhD into the common ownership of natural resources. So, Gary Flamenhoff, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Carl. Excellent. So, yeah, it's mind-boggling seeing the the numbers that are being thrown around uh, the media um, through Treasury. You know, who would have thought we'd have more than a $200 billion stimulus um, produced when at the start of this year, uh, there was a chance of a correction, but I was kind of thinking, look, it, it's, you know, it, it's kind of fading this, this correction. So Gary Flamenhoff, what are you reading and how's your crystal ball looking? Well, I, I don't think anyone has a crystal ball, but it's just amazing how some things that were impossible uh, a month ago are now suddenly inevitable. That, that's the thing that I <clears throat> find the most amazing. My perspective on it is this two, two from the good and bad. You asked me to look at the good and the bad. So from the good, I would say that all the things in the past that were being blamed on the individual, it's your fault that you're poor, that you don't have health care, that, that you're poor or whatever, all of a sudden oh, well, gee, maybe it's actually the way the economy is organized that's, that's causing it. So I think there's a shift from individual to collective responsibility, and I think that's, that's a great thing. The second, the bad part is that this is being taken advantage of uh, for a further concentration of wealth and a further financialization and a further transfer of, of uh, financial assets to the upper 1%. And I think that's that's ongoing, and I think that's accelerating. There's a there's a greater greater financialization. Much of the stimulus is going to to banks and corporations, just like in 2008. Um, it's decimating small business. There's going to be more greater monopolies by big business, and this trend is going to just keep going until that tick just keeps sucking that blood and finally explodes. But you know who knows when that's going to happen. But so that's the bad part is that it's. It's it's furthering the concentration of wealth, especially by the the actions of these these stimulus package, which in many places is is going to banks and corporations and and not not to the public. However, on the good side, <clears throat> there is a, a greater emphasis on fiscal policy instead of monetary policy. And that's really the first time we've seen that where they're actually talking about giving money to the people for a change, which is which is happening to greater or lesser extent in in different countries so so that's my overall take on it yeah well well we see the imf uh, predicting global output will now contract by 4.2 percent 
for the year, uh, which is you know nearly three times greater than the 1.6% in 09 at the depths of the global financial crisis. So that's the sort of uh, impact that's coming through. And uh, they're also saying that 90% of all countries will experience negative growth in real GDP this year against 62% in 09. When China had their massive uh, infrastructure stimulus uh, pump priming, in particular the Australian economy with our iron ore exports, it doesn't seem to be Hail Mary available for the global economy at the moment. So, so this um, allows me to, to sort of take this in a different direction, which is the whole fixation on GDP. And, um, you know, as a as a disciple of Herman Daly, the whole idea of GDP is really coming into question. But this this crisis is <clears throat> sort of getting every people are doubling down on this idea that oh my God, GDP is dropping. That's that's a catastrophe. Well, I'm sure the the, the degrowth advocates are are having a field day with this. Um, they're actually getting their dreams their dreams to come true. And and so everyone says, well, but degrowth is a catastrophe. And as Daly would say, yeah, well, that's because the airplane the um economy is designed like an airplane you know when it's when it stops it drops to the ground but but a helicopter can hover so so there's different ways of looking at it and this fixation on gdp you know has to end and we should be focusing on on human well-being part of this whole thing might just be part of the limits to growth you know um kicking in because if you remember that that report that was done in 72 has been has been right on target it hasn't um, the the actual um, empirical outcome is almost identical to the, what they predicted in '72, and th- this is around now is when the these some of these limits we're going to start to kick in. So I really think that the the fixation on GDP is misguided. Well, the limits to growth didn't quite predict uh, negative pricing for oil. That's something we've seen uh, flow through in the last week or so, where now because. Uh, all the oil storage bases are pretty well full. Uh, we're now seeing the settlement price uh, at minus $37 for Texas Intermediate, which is just unheard of. No one would have thought of that. And so much of that limit to growth was about peak oil and there being uh, this massive lack of energy available. But instead, we, thanks to shale oil, as bad as that is, we now have this glut. Yeah, but shale oil is a temporary, uh, <laughs> temporary blip that's going to disappear soon. Um, and it would have already if if the prices uh, had continued to drop. But they they did an emergency measure to try to save the the shale oil, which is just uh, living on debt. The other thing that's good about this is it's they're suddenly realizing, oh well, the the central banks can create all this money and give it to to banks. Uh, how come they can't give it to us? So so the whole uh, sort of more widespread understanding of of modern monetary theory is is a really great outcome from this also. Yeah, well, I'm loving this website, wallstreetonparade.com, and Pam and Russ Martins are delivering story after story there that you just don't hear about anywhere else. And, uh, yeah, one of them has been about uh, these trillions of dollars that the Federal Reserve started to unfurl way back in September of 2019 
And uh, since that time, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has grown by a stunning $2.4 trillion. So uh, now it, the, the Fed's balance sheet's at $6.4 trillion, which was meant to have wound back uh, following the GFC. The Martins write that on the day Lehman Brothers collapsed, September 15, 2008, uh, this balance sheet stood at just $995 billion. <laughs> so uh, the genie is out of the bag and uh, MMT has helped to, modern monetary theory has helped to bring this about, but is it necessarily a good thing? Well, uh, if you read Michael Hudson's article about the, the use and abuse of MMT, it all depends on, on where they direct the credit. And, and uh, it, so far, they, uh, since 2008, it's all been focused on the supply side. Give more to the, to the banks, to the suppliers, to the corporations. Buying and selling assets doesn't produce anything. And then none of their, none of their uh, cash gets put into... Uh, uh, R&D or into high, more production. It just goes into driving up their stock price. And unfortunately, I see this this continuing with a lot of the current stimulus, but the, you know, it's, it can only go on so long. And, and what they're doing is they're just handing out a few crumbs to keep the people from revolting while they continue this, this financialization and concentration of wealth. And it's a question of how much people are going to put up with. And, you know, because of the virus, all these protests have been shut down. You can't you can't meet. So the yellow vests in France and the protests in Chile and, and all these places where people were rebelling against neoliberalism were shut down, which was just very convenient for the authorities. But sooner or later, um, unless they really give some a relief to the public, you know, this is going to just, uh, con it's going to continue to uh, uh, percolate and the people are going to continue to to rebel more and more against this concentration of wealth. Let me, let me just uh, bring up a couple more things I wrote down that were that were good at coming out of this. There's the all these um, uh, sudden understanding of you know universal health care being needed, uh, idea of a universal basic income. There's rent freezes, mortgage freezes, eviction freezes. Um, they're putting homeless people in hotels, which was unthinkable, you know, a few months ago. Lower oil prices, relocalization is something that you had brought up, where the this is. The idea that the, the, the big these big institutions are and centralization uh, is is the solution. I think people are questioning that. Plus, these these long supply chains to uh, India and China, people are starting to think, hey, maybe we should um, maybe Trump was right. Maybe we should you know start building things here again. Uh, heaven forbid. People are questioning uh, neoliberalism, and uh, it's gotten a bad name. And one of the things that um, unintended consequences, the lack of road traffic is cleaned up the air. And I think I've seen so many articles talking about how clean the air is. Places like Northern India, they're look, they're seeing the Himalayas for the first time in 30 years from, I think, certain places. And the LA air is like crystal clear for the first time in, you know, a generation. And so all of a sudden people are saying, hey, uh, maybe I'm going to go out and buy an electric vehicle. So, um, <laughs> and, and on that note, I, I've been following Tesla and their um, sales in uh, in China from the Shanghai factory are going through the roof while other companies sales are declining. So so that's a good that's a good outcome as well. Mm, the green shift uh, is needed more than ever. And what a handy uh, snapshot in time this is going to be. It's like a 
so many good things, so many bad things, and who knows, um, you know, which way it's going to go. Yeah, the battle between insiders and the general public. Well, uh, yeah, we look, you know, you, you basically ran through the whole show agenda there, Gary. Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> So if we look at the EU, they're uh, recognizing that some 90% of their pharmaceutical ingredients come from India or China. So recognizing they need to decentralize and relocalize there. Uh, there are also big problems with the flow of um, excess pharmaceuticals within the EU. And Italy didn't get the help it should have because of various EU bureaucracies. So, uh, yeah, this local resilience is going to be a big theme. So, yeah, for me, on the, on looking at the good things, we've seen uh, the UK Treasury take over money creation there to actually pull it out of the hands of the Bank of England and use their Ways and Means facility and off a balance sheet measure, which means that future generations won't actually feel the pain of, uh, of debt in the future, which was uh, a good thing. You know, why should banks be able to create all this money and charge interest off it when governments could spend it into the economy and from that uh, increase incomes? That's the sort of thinking we need. Here in Australia, we had our rent relief packages where there were six-month uh, eviction pauses. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that one plays out. I still feel like a lot of renters are going to be living in fear, not able to rest easily because they know they haven't got uh, the income coming in to pay their rent. Uh, whilst there was some, you know, in Victoria, there was a $420 million uh, land tax relief package, but that's only offered to landlords who engage in a negotiation with their renters to drop the rents. But I wonder how many landlords will really take that up because uh, when that occurs, when those rents are dropped, the valuation of the property falls and then the banks may well lean on those who have recently bought their investment property, perhaps with a high loan to value ratio, uh, which means that the banks could uh, place a margin call and make them repay that difference. So landlords are not actually going to be that keen on that. Uh, we haven't heard much from the banking industry on what they're going to do with investor-owned mortgages. They were very quick to come out and support the commercial sector, which in terms of rents is about double what is paid in residential rents. But yeah, if the people have no money and they can't go outside, well, then there's not much demand there. So it sort of seemed like a bit of a supply side hangover from the days gone by. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm not so sure how effective that's going to be. None of the Eastern Seaboard states except for Victoria have offered direct rent relief to renters. And here we have some 600,000 rental dwellings, but there was only $80 million on offer, which if you divide it by 600,000 is barely a couple of days rent relief. 
so it sort of became obvious that there was going to be a tight threshold on who, on who could apply for this loan. And lo and behold, there was Daniel Andrews saying it's only going to help some 30,000 renters uh, who can demonstrate they've had a 25% fall in income. So uh, that's about 5% of our rental community here in Victoria, which uh, means nationwide, uh, you know, renters are again at the bottom of the trough. So uh, a small step in the right direction, but really we need to hear more from banks and what they can do to halt those investor mortgage repayments uh, for people who have lost their income totally. And that's, that's what we're missing. So uh, listeners, if I can just geek you out for a second longer on this. Yeah, as you've heard me say many times on the show that for a property investor with a $500,000, $550,000 land valuation, they're paying just $875 in land tax. So uh, yeah, how much of that would be passed on that would make a meaningful difference to the everyday renter? Not much, I suggest. So uh, you, you then look at someone who owns a $1.55 million property, they're facing a $7,375 land tax bill. Uh, but again, you know, they're probably assuming a 3% return on, on that 1.55 million property, which means the average rent is paying five and a half grand a month. Um, still the savings are meager there, but it sort of implies to me that more of these land tax savings are going to go to renters who live in uh, wealthier suburbs than those on uh, a casualized wage who have lost their income altogether. So, yeah, it's uh, something that we need to hear more of, what the banks can actually do to reflect their concern for society when such a sudden change is imposed upon everyone. And, uh, gee, wouldn't they come out with their, their social license sort of uh, reinvigorated if they were to do something meaningful for uh, all these renters in events and the arts community, uh, hospitality, who have uh, just been slammed and uh, are sitting around waiting for finally some sort of government assistance uh, here coming towards the end of May. You covered a lot of ground, and um, I had a few comments on that. One is the sudden emphasis on housing as a human right. I mean, who does the government serve? Do they serve the developers and the banks, or do they serve the public? And when it comes to the public, do they, do they serve the owners, or do they serve the renters? And so suddenly housing has become uh, come to the, to the forefront. And one case that came up recently, which I found interesting, uh, is that in Vienna, Austria, something like 80% of the, of the public lives in social housing that's owned by the government, and they pay very reasonable, very reasonable rent, so they choose not to become owners. So there's a lot of different paradigms that, that could be explored if we realize that, that everybody needs housing and it shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be a source of profit. It should just be um, a, a basically a public utility that everybody needs. <clears throat> and then the second thing, um, uh, you mentioned about Italy. Um, there's a whole geopolitical element there where the EU completely failed to support um, the, the countries that had a medical crisis and, 
and uh, Russia and China came in and, and gave them aid, which, um, which they needed. So Italy's uh, loyalties may be, uh, you know, changing in the future after they saw, you know, who was helping them out. And then the other issue you talked about was the UK Treasury. I think that is probably maybe one of the most revolutionary implications of anything that's happened to the fact that the UK Treasury uh, created credit as instead of letting the, the Bank of England do it. Um, because the last time that was done was, was in, during the US Civil War when, Link, when Lincoln created greenbacks. And um, people have forgotten that the government uh, has the ability to create credit and it should not be something that's outsourced to banks. And don't forget that banks create 95 or 97% of the money supply by making loans, as you mentioned. But what people don't realize is that 75 to 85% of bank loans are for real estate. And that's what drives the whole, the whole real estate boom and bust cycle. So banks should not have the ability to create the, to create the money supply and that the only reason they can do that is because of fractional reserves. So that's a whole nother issue. But with the bank, uh, sorry, with the UK Treasury issuing credit directly, people might suddenly remember that the, the government can actually spend money into the economy. Create that, and that's, that expands the money supply. And they can spend it on public goods, things that are good for everybody, instead of being simply just a real estate profit center for banks, which is what it is now. Yes, wouldn't that be good? But gee, uh, we've got to have some worries for what the developing nations are going to face. Uh, my heart's in my mouth when I ever when I see the African news reports and hoping things don't get too carried away there because uh, the the IMF's talking about issuing a new round of special drawing rights with trillions of dollars to help all those billions of people in developing nations that mightn't have the know-how or the ability to create their own currency. And that is one of the great weaknesses of MMT, of this ability to create money, is that uh, for nations that don't have the sound uh, economic uh, fundamentals, it can quickly uh, spiral out of control. The countries that have done the best are the ones that paid off their IMF uh, and World Bank loans and got out of that whole uh, international um, financing system that's basically controlled by the U.S. Like Bolivia, for example, before the recent coup, had paid off all of their their IMF loans a long time ago. And the reason why they were doing so well is that they had they were getting most of their revenue from natural resources. So they they basically they nationalized their their resources, but they didn't nationalize their business. So that the Morales was actually did a, was very smart. And he let business continue as usual, but he took the revenue from from the resources, and that's the reason why Bolivia had the highest a highest um, growth rate in South America, which confirms everything that Carl, you and Prosper have been saying, you know, for decades. They collected the rent on the resources and didn't and didn't um, uh, overly stifle business. They let them have a free hand, and so that's why Bolivia was a success story. And then they used that money from the resources to, to benefit the general public by building, you know, housing, education, healthcare, and so forth. Uh, similar to what, to what Venezuela did, but, but I don't think, uh, but Venezuela was not nearly as successful um, as Bolivia, except in, uh, Venezuela was successful in social spending from their oil, but, but they, uh, they didn't really diversify their economy 
uh, whereas Bolivia did a whole lot better job. They were, they were, you know, doing better than any country in South America, basically because they followed your policies, Carl. Yeah, well, is is that what we're going to see as these countries face uh, more and more financial pressure? We saw on the weekend uh, the Victorian and New South Wales treasurers come out and say, look, we just can't afford it anymore. We have to wind back stamp duty, replace it with land tax. And then across, you know, the the gamut of calls for bailouts, uh, sitting behind each one of those calls for bailouts is a monopolist creaming the money, whether they are the aircraft landing slots, whether it's the uh, commercial uh, radio networks who are demanding bailouts, but yet the uh, uh, organisations that own the uh, broadcasting towers are claiming $100,000 just for one a simple one community radio station I know of, and from that, um, uh, you know, they're not actually producing anything new for the economy. They just hold this monopoly interest over the electromagnetic spectrum and broadcast it through a, a tower that probably needs replacing once every ten years. Uh, but gee whiz, uh, that's the next stage I see as um, what I'm predicting will be. Yeah, it'll be a recession. Um, whether it becomes a depression will depend on those reinfection rates, but we're lucky here in Australia to have got on top of it. But uh, who knows what it's going to mean for our export industries. Uh, it's going to be the need for a lot of change, but uh, businesses can't enact in that change because they have such high debt overheads. So maybe Michael Hudson's uh, claim of a debt jubilee is not so crazy after all. Yeah, maybe not. Um, suddenly, uh, the emphasis on austerity suddenly went out the window. It's funny how that, that, that changed right away. But the other thing that's really interesting is how all these giant corporations are all, and politicians are always flogging the free market, free market. And as soon as they get into the slightest bit of a jam, they're like, oh, give us a handout. So that I think is is has been blatantly obvious to everyone how how what unbelievable hypocrites they are uh, when they talk about how the, the you know the market market forces should should rule everything, but uh, you know they they want a bailout. The the most one of the most egregious examples is the cruise ship industry in America. It's not even based in the U.S. They have all their ships flagged in, in tax-exempt countries. They don't pay any taxes to the U.S. government, and yet they want the U.S. government to bail them out, and they're getting it. So that's just a, you know, a, a pathetic example. But you, um, you mentioned these monopolies. Um, <clears throat> I, I think in one of your documents, I saw, I saw the example of, of Palmer's uh, mineralogy company getting you know, $100 million every 12 weeks. Um, from minerals and like <laughs> on one project, yeah, one so, project right, only. right. So, so why does he own the minerals? Why don't we? That's what I'm calling the economic commonwealth. You know, if if nature or society creates something, it belongs to us. And I'll, I'll give you another example, which came to me recently. Okay, how much how much would would Amazon or Google be without the internet? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's exactly. Oh, how, what's the answer? The answer is how much would it be worth? The answer is Nothing. zero, zero. Yeah. So, so they're living on the backs of a, of a public investment that created the internet. Now, so my, my question is, this, to me, this is part of the economic commonwealth. Where's our, where's our dividend check that we got from that investment that we made 
in creating the internet. Uh, the internet, of course, it was U.S. citizens that paid for it, but um, nevertheless, you know, how come we're getting nothing from it? Just like in Australia, why are you getting nothing from the minerals that Palmer owned? Those are things created by nature and society. Those are the things. Those are the Commonwealth that we should be getting uh, a rent check from. But we're not because all of those things have been privatized because of this ideology, you know, of, of market fundamentalism and privatization. And they can't seem to distinguish between, you know, what's, what belongs to the public and what should be private. So those things that, that are created by nature or society should belong to us. And those things created by individual effort should, should belong to the, the people who make the investment. So that different, that, that differentiation is just, seems to be beyond anyone, you know, the average people to understand, except when it comes to oils. Why they don't get it with the, the, the broadcast spectrum or with uh, the internet or with, you know, other minerals. I think Palmer owns nickel and, and, and stuff. Why they don't get it with all these other resources is beyond me. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Gary Flomenhoff, thanks so much for your time today. Always a good conversation. And let's hope that Rupert Murdoch awakes and pulls the blinkers off society so everyday people can start to understand these things. Thanks for listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald.